Welcome to this week's episode of The Knowing Heart. So this week's lecture is dedicated to the story of Hanukkah on a deeper level, and it focuses on the opening verse of the Haftorah for Shabbos Hanukkah. The title is Daughters of Zion. Okay, as always, let's start with a modern-day issue. So, the modern-day issue that we're going to talk about is what to be proud of. Jeremiah states, Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, nor the strong man boast of his strength, nor the rich man boast of his riches. But let him that boasts exult in this, that he understands and knows me. Capital M, God. Okay, so from the second verse, we see that a person should absolutely be proud of his accomplishments. As Rabbi Yosef Yitzhak of Lubavitch stated, that one must pat himself on the back for a job well done. However, the prophet, Jeremiah, is directing us here as to what we should be proud of and what we shouldn't be feeling proud about. The teachings of Chabad focus primarily around the words yesh, literally it means existence, we refer to it as ego, arrogance, and bittel, humility, self-nullification. And the teachings emphasize that the only way that one can become a conduit for God is by nullifying his ego. As God states, quoted in the Talmud, any person who has arrogance within him, the Holy One, blessed be he, said, he and I cannot dwell together in the world. However, to understand Chabad's focus on humility, one must have a clear understanding of the difference between humility and humiliation, and between being humble versus being a trampled-upon doorstep. Hence, the words of Jeremiah separating for us of what we should be proud of and of what we shouldn't be proud of need clear examination and understanding. This lecture is based upon a mimer, a mystical teaching of the Rebbe of righteous and blessed memory that the Rebbe delivered on this Shabbat in 1969, which was the third of a four-part series. Nevertheless, do know, this lecture stands totally on its own, focusing on the opening verse of this week's Haftorah in its referring to the children of Israel as the daughter of Zion. Okay, let's get into some necessary introductions. When Shabbat coincides with a holiday, the regular Haftorah, the portion of the Book of Prophets, of the week is replaced with a holiday portion, a holiday Haftorah. And so it is as well with this Shabbat, Shabbat Chanukah, on which we read a portion from Zechariah, which contains a prophecy with a menorah. And I quote to you the opening verse of that prophecy, And he, the angel, said to me, What do you see? And I said, I saw and behold, it was a candelabrum, a menorah, all of gold, with its oil bowl on top of it, and its seven lamps thereon, seven tubes each to the lamps that were on top of it. 
That's the verse. Now, however, the Haftorah begins with the last verses of chapter 2 and the entire chapter 3 when the prophecy of the menorah begins only in chapter 4. Why are those opening verses important to the Haftorah of Hanukkah? The opening verse of the Haftorah is, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I will come and dwell in your midst, says the Lord. Now, on this verse, we have several questions. Number one, we find that the children of Israel are called Zion. So why are they called here daughter of Zion? Number two, the verse in Psalm states, and I quote, Serve the Lord with joy, come before him with song. Separating song and joy. Serve the Lord with joy, one phrase. Come before him with song, another phrase. And the Zohar states, joy in the morning and song in the evening, telling us that these distinct different services, song and joy, are performed at two distinct separate times. And not only are they performed at different times, but at opposite times, day and night. Hence, we now see that song and joy are two opposite services. And nevertheless, our verse in Zechariah puts them together as one. Right? The verse said, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. The third and final question, hence we need to understand what is the connection that specifically when we are speaking to the daughter of Zion, these two opposite services of song and joy become united as one. Okay, another introduction. Let us begin with understanding the mystical dimension of morning, day, and evening, night. In a psalm dedicated to the sons of Korach, the verse, it's in chapter 84, verse 12, states, For a sun and a shield is the Lord. Now, the Lord is the English word for Havaya, which is the ineffable tetragrammaton name of God. So let's go back. For a sun and a shield is the Lord, Havaya, God. Now, God is the English word used for when the Hebrew name of Elohim. Now, what the verse is telling us, according to the teachings, is that there is the sun, the daytime, which is the revelation of Lord, which is Havaya, the higher name of God. And there is the shield, which represents the night, in which the revelation of God is covered and concealed. And there is only the revelation of the lower name of God, Elohim. Meaning, that everything that exists during the daytime is there at nighttime as well. Nothing factually changes, only that at nighttime everything is hidden and concealed from the eye and is not seen to the point where they can be thought of as non-existing. Hence, daytime is the revelation of God's, pre God's presence, while nighttime, exile, is the concealment of God's presence to the point where one may entertain the notion that the presence of God does not exist. Hence, the bigger picture, morning, which is day, revelation, havaya, represents the times of the holy temple and Jewish freedom, while evening, which is night, shield of concealment, Elohim, 
represents the time of exile in which God states, and I shall hide my face on that day. So much so that even the miraculous holidays that took place for the Jewish people during the times of exile, that of Purim and of Hanukkah, were not revealed miracles of God, but rather specifically clothed within the concealment of nature. Purim came about because the Jews had a good connection, Queen Esther in the palace, and Hanukkah came about through a difficult war of the Hashmanaim against the Syrian Greeks. Everything was closed within nature. So yes, there were miracles, but they weren't revealed. The concealment of the presence of God during exile is an outcome of the concealment of our experiencing God in our service to God. Hence, even though the essence of our soul is, and I quote to you from Tanya, which believes in one God and remains faithful to him even at the time when the sin is committed, right? And this is represented with the one jug of pure olive oil that was found in the holy temple in the story of Hanukkah after everything else was defiled. Nevertheless, the essence of the of the soul, even though it is pure and connected and loyal, however, it is not illuminating our 613 faculties and our thought, speech, and action. And hence, she is, I quote, in a state of veritable exile. And with this, we can now understand why the time for song is in the evening, night, exile, after which there is a time of joy in the morning. Let us understand. Song represents the service of a longing and a yearning for God. Hence, specifically at the time of evening, exile, and concealment of God's presence, by focusing on the dark state of affairs and how distant we are from God, in the concealment caused upon the presence of God through our sins and through our lack of conscientiousness in our Torah, prayer, and mitzvah observance, this creates and causes a deep longing and yearning for the illumination and revelation of God's presence in our lives and in our world. Hence, nighttime concealment Exile causes the song of yearning and longing. After which, this yearning and longing brings about the revelation and consciousness of God in our lives, the morning, which then brings about the service of joy. We are taught, again in Tanya, I quote, for there is no greater joy than the escape from exile and imprisonment, as in the example of the king's son, that would be us, who was kept in captivity, grinding coin, corn in prison and becoming covered with filth. That's the sin of exile. Then he is liberated and he returns to his father, that would be God's royal house. Infinitely, so obviously there's that joy infinitely more so when being that our soul is, and I quote, truly a piece of God above. And therefore, when we are in the grip of sin, separation, and exile, 
It is God himself, the soul within us, who is in exile. As we are taught by King Solomon of verse and songs, the king, God, is bound in tresses, which is explained by our sages, Tanya, and I quote, Bound with the tresses of the mind, the king is bound by man's improper thoughts. The divine presence is in exile. The crown of our head is fallen. Woe to us, for we have sinned. Therefore, the Holy One is called the humiliated king. For there is no humiliation deeper than this. Now, if that was the state of affairs, by our times of sin and darkness, how great must our service of joy be in the morning when through our teshuvah, our repentance of the previous evening, through our song of longing and yearning, we have freed the King, God Himself, from the imprisonment that we brought upon God. And we now allow for the revelation of God's presence into our lives and in the world that we live in. Now, another introduction. The prophet states in the book of Samuels, For you are my lamp, O Lord, again, Havaya, and the Lord, Havaya, does light my darkness. Now, we need to understand, why does it say twice Havaya in this verse? Why twice God's name? Rather than just saying, For you are my lamp and light my darkness, O Lord, Havaya. And in order to understand this, we need to understand what does it mean that God is our lamp. The sages teach, that's in Devarim, Roberts, and Medrash, and here's what they say. For if heed, you shall heed all the commandments. That's a verse in Deuteronomy. Now, Said Bar Kapara, he's a sage, the soul and the Torah are likened to a candle. Concerning the soul that is written in Proverbs, candle of God is the soul of man. And concerning the Torah it is written, again in Proverbs, for the candle is the mitzvah and the Torah the light. So Bar Kapara goes on to say, Said the Holy One, blessed be he, to this man, My candle is in your hand. And your candle is in my hand. My candle in your hand, this is the Torah. And your candle in my hand, this is the soul. And if you will heed my candle, I will heed your candle. And if you will extinguish my candle, I will extinguish your candle. And then Barkapara goes on to say, From where do we notice? For it is written in Deuteronomy, but heed yourself and heed your soul very well, which is as, for if heed, you shall heed. Meaning that the double terminology is that if we heed God's candle, then God heeds our candle. And this is not just concerning our spirituality, the soul, our candle, but also concerning our physicality. For in ethics of our fathers, our sages tell us that the physical world stands on three things, three pillars, Torah study, the service of God, which is prayer, the deeds of kindness, which is the mitzvot, which these three pillars are our three service of thought, speech, and action. Hence, our physicality depends upon 
our candle, concluding our physicality, depends upon us heeding the candle of God, the three pillars, thought, speech, and action of a Torah and mitzvot life. Hence, now we have to go on and see. This service of the candle of God, which is the three pillars of Torah and mitzvot, is our service to God in regular times. However, in the times of exile, we must engage with an even higher service. Why? For in the times of exile, the, let's go back to that verse, the first part, for you are my lamp, O Havaya, is not enough. And we need to reach deeper into the second name of Havaya, which transcends beyond the spiritual chain of evolution. Why do we have to reach into the higher Havaya, the second Havaya? In order to have, let's read that part of the verse again. And the Lord, higher Havaya, does light my darkness. So the candle, the lower Havaya, is not enough for us in the times of, of darkness. It's only enough for us in the times of the Holy Temple. We have God's candle, God has our candle, we heed God's candle, God heeds our candle. But in a time of darkness, of exile, we need to reach far higher into a higher ineffable tetragonitin, into the higher name of Havaya, which supersedes all the systems of the spiritual evolution and Torah and mitzvot, because we need to have Havaya light our darkness. Now, hence, one name of Havaya has four letters, the yud hey vav hey. while when we have both the names, the lower and the higher Havaya, we have eight letters. Now, seven represents nature. Eight represents the transcendence to which we connect through our service of teshuvah, repentance, which is higher than the service of Torah and mitzvot, which is only the one and lower tetragrammaton, the four letters of the lower Havaya. And now with these introductions, let us begin the lecture. So as always, I'm going to list to you the mystical concepts we're going to explore. We're going to explore four mystical concepts today. Spiritual, physical holiness, and physical darkness. The second concept, drawing the core into the details. The third concept, pride worthy. And then the fourth and last concept, daughter of Zion. And let the amazement of Hasidus begin. Okay, first concept, spiritual, physical holiness, and physical darkness. What are these three about? In the last two lectures, and I post a link to them, and also in the description of this video, you'll also have a link to this week's written out lecture, typed out lecture. Okay, so in the last two lectures, we explored the teachings of our sages that said, my place, God, capital M, my place is subordinate to me, and I am not subordinate to my people. Now, we explain that the mystical meaning behind the statement of place being subordinate to God is that the finite space itself, as it is finite, becomes so transparent and nullified, subordinate, to God that the space becomes a vessel for the beyond space. Now, this phenomenon took 
physically took place in the Holy Temple, in the Holy of Holies concerning the Holy Ark. Now, as you remember, we explained that the Holy of Holies was, the Holy Ark was, I'm sorry, let's say it again. The Holy of Holies was a room that was 10 by 10 cubits. A cubit is about 18, 19 inches. While the Holy Ark was two and a half by one and a half by one and a half cubits. Hence, once the Holy Ark was placed in the Holy of Holies, the measurement should have been, let's do the, the math, the space is three, three and a quarter by two and a half arc by space three and a quarter, which would equal 10. However, and so too in the other direction, it should have been four and a quarter space by one and a half arc by four and a quarter space, which again would equal 10 cubits. However, this was not the case. The actual measurements when they measured space, arc space, was five, two and a half, five, five, one and a half, five, which would mean that the room would have to be 12 and a half by 11 and a half. Yet when you measured from wall to wall, it was only 10 by 10. This is an incredible phenomenon, a miracle, which we really can't wrap our head around. Hence, the sage tells us, and I quote, Rabbi Levi says, This matter is a tradition we received from our ancestors. The place of the Ark of the Covenant is not in the measurement. So hence, while the Ark had a special measurement, and while the Holy of the Holies had a special measurement, the Ark, the measurement space of the Ark, did not take up any of the measurement space of the Holy of Holies. Why so? Because in the Holy of Holies, the space of the Holy Ark and the Holy of Holies were, I quote, my place is subordinate to me. And hence, the finite space became absolutely nullified and transparent, housing the beyond space of God. This we discussed in the last two lectures. Now, we also emphasized that even though there is spiritual space, which is known as the six direction emanations, as well, nevertheless, being that spirituality comes from the infinite light, while the physicality comes only from the essence of God, therefore, we have two differences between spiritual space and physical space. Number one, being that the infinite light has a source, and is conscious and subservient to its source, right? The infinite light is the infinite light of God. God is the source of the infinite light. Hence, the offshoot of the infinite light, which is spirituality, has within its genetics an absolute knowledge that it has a source and then has an innate subservience to its source. So that's how spirituality works. However, being that the source of the physical is the essence of God, now the essence of God has no source, God forbid, and exists from it himself, hence it is within the genetics of the offshoot of the essence of God, which is the physical, to entertain the notion that it has no source and that it exists from itself. Hence, only in the physical realm and its paradigm is there a true ego and a notion of a separation of my space 
outside of God's space, while spiritual space, on the other hand, can entertain no such chutzpah. You will not have any scientist angel studying or trying to entertain the thought that the world, it exists from itself, a Big Bang, a gases, whatever it may be. Only the human mind can entertain that because it's within our genetics, the essence of God, which has no source and truly does exist of itself, of himself. Now, the second difference between physical space and spiritual space. Now, on the other hand, on the other side of the coin, spirituality can likewise not experience true, pure, and absolute self-nullification. Why? We just said it's in its genetics to be truly subservient. Well, the reason is, one, its nullification is to its source, which is only the infinite light and not the essence. Two, its self-nullification is built upon its own intellectual and emotional appreciation of the infinite superiority of its source. And hence, it is willing to be humble and subservient to its source. Now, what this practically means is that its subservience is about itself and its intellectual and emotional appreciation of its source. And this is not true, pure, or absolute self-nullification. Not so with the self-nullification of the physical, in which, one, its nullification is to its source, which is the essence, God himself, and not just to God's infinite light. And two, the physical realm of intellect has absolutely no grasp or emotional appreciation of the essence of God, of who God is, of what God is. Therefore, our subservience, humility, and self-nullification to God is not based upon or driven by our intellectual or emotional appreciation of who God is. Rather, our self-nullification to God is driven by an obedience of humility to a humility, subservience, and self-nullification that is being called upon from us by God himself. Not that we can understand it. With this understanding, we understand that it is not the angel's humility and subservience to God that gives God pleasure or touches the essence of God, but rather it is specifically the humility, subservience, self-nullification of our obedient service to God, which one, connects with the essence of God, and two, draws forth from God himself true pleasure. Okay, now let's see what's happening in this lecture. In the Maima that we are presently focusing on, number three in the series, the Rebbe of righteous and blessed memory takes this to the next level. Within the physical realm itself, right? We said that in the physical realm is where it really happens, not in the spiritual realm. However, within the physical realm itself, even though the clear revelation of my place is subordinate to me, which was openly seen in the Holy of Holies with space housing beyond space, nevertheless, 
the ultimate fulfillment of building an abode for God takes place specifically in the physical realm of exile. Yes, the revelation of this ultimate abode for the essence of God himself will be only when Mashiach, Messiah, comes. However, the building of this abode happens specifically now when we are in exile. Why? In order to understand this, let us see a teaching of our sages upon the verse in Numbers, the book of Numbers, which says like this, Now the man Moses was exceedingly humble, more so than any person on the face of the earth. Okay, what do our sages teach us? That this humility of Moses was primarily towards the generation of, it's called Ikvetah the Meshicha, the heels of Mashiach, which means the last generation of exile. That would be you and me. That this humility of Moses was because of our self-sacrifice that is necessary in order to serve God in the darkest times of exile. Now, I want to note that self-sacrifice does not just mean persecution. It also means the self-sacrifice that we experience in the free world of democracy. And I want to quote to you what the opening law of the entire code of Jewish law says. And one should not be ashamed because of people who mock him in his service of God. That is a huge self-sacrifice. We're always, we're working amongst the Gentiles in a secular world and we're so afraid to look and sound and be too Jewish. That's a huge self-sacrifice. Let's get back now. Okay? So, the reason for this is, why is it that the self-sacrifice in the times of exile is even greater in building the abode of God than in the times of the Holy Temple and King Solomon, such a spiritual, beautiful Jewish time. The reason for this is that specifically the service of self-sacrifice, which includes the service of teshuvah, true repentance, is the service that mandates coming from the essence of our soul, beyond our intellect and emotions. For only in the essence of our soul does we see no two choices to choose from, but only the one choice of being loyal to God. Our mind, we can play around with that. Our hearts, we can play around with that. But the essence of our soul can't play around with that. It sees only one choice and one life to live, a life of Torah mitzvah loyalty to God. Now, in the times of the Holy Temple, the children of Israel did not need this depth of connection. And hence, their service to God did not drive them into the essence of their soul. What they saw and what they heard of the revelation of God that was taking place in the Holy Temple and in Jerusalem and in Israel was suffice to drive them to a life of Torah and mitzvot. Not so us in these dark and challenging times of exile. Hence, for every mitzvah we do, we must overcome the obstacles of self and of our environment. Hence, we are driven to connect with the essence of our soul, which is our deepest connection with the essence of God himself. 
Therefore, it is precisely through our exile-driven self-sacrifice to remain loyal to our being Jewish and to living a Jewish life of Torah and mitzvot in any way that we each do, that is where we are building the ultimate physical abode for the essence of God himself. Because in today, to do anything Jewish proudly, we have to connect to our essence of our soul, which is connected to the essence of God. Hence, what we're doing today is building a true abode for the essence of God himself. Let's go on now. However, just reaching our core essence, the point of the Jew, of our soul is not enough. Rather, the point of space, housing beyond space, is, as we previously explained, specifically when the beyond space manifests itself in all the details, parameters, and characteristics of space. In other words, we are not looking to shatter space with a hostile imposition of beyond space upon space. Rather, we are looking for a peaceful unity of space and beyond space. By space becoming subservient and transparent to the truest essence of all, the beyond space of God himself, in which space and beyond space equally coexist in peace and unity. So let me just explain that for a moment. You realize that to God, spiritual is no closer than physical, and physical is no further than spiritual. Because to God himself, they are both equal expressions of God's essence. Hence, when we can have true humility, obedience, transparency, subservience to the truest core existence of all, which is the essence of God himself, hence we can find peace and unity between the characteristics and details of our spiritual, of our physical space life with the beyond space existence of God. Now, hence the self-sacrifice essence of the soul, service of the Jew, is not only in the realm of dying for my Judaism, as in the times of the Spanish auto de fe or of Stalinist Russia, of the Jew's ultimate decision of to be or not to be. But rather, this is also in our praying, our Torah study, our keeping Shabbat, our keeping kosher, our putting on tefillin, and other mitzvot within the freedom of democracy. Thus, our challenge is to be a self-sacrificed Jew in all the details of our three pillars of Torah study, prayer, and good deeds, that it be fully imbued with the self-sacrifice of the essence of our soul, no negotiations with God, but rather completely the essence of our soul, connecting and drawing the essence of God into all the details of our life of finite space. So yes, we're going to eat, but we're going to make a blessing. It's going to be kosher and so forth and so on. Yes, we're going to have a house, but it's going to be a kosher home. It's going to have a mezuzah and we're going to study Torah there. Yes, we're going to have an office, 
but our office is going to proudly have a mezuzah. It's going to proudly have a siddur in the office for when we need to stop and do a prayer. Now, that's this space housing the beyond space. Now, let's go to the next topic. Aha! And with this, we can now return to the concept discussed in the very opening of the lecture of, as we quoted from Jeremiah, the two verses, Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, nor the strong man boast of his strength, nor the rich man boast of his riches, but let him that boasts exult in this, that he understands and knows me, capital M, God. Now, the key word of Jeremiah that Jeremiah is emphasizing is the last word of the verse. He finishes with that he understands and knows me, the essence of God. What Jeremiah is saying is that the wisdom and the strength and the riches of a person in the service to God. We're talking about spiritual wisdom, spiritual strength, spiritual riches. To service to God is nothing to boast about. The only pride-worthy service to God there is, is when our service is completely imbued with those last words of the verse, knows me. Referring to the teshuva and self-sacrifice of the essence of our soul's subservience and unity with God. Yes, we must have the three pillars of service to God in wisdom, Torah study, strength, prayer, and riches, good deeds. However, they become pride-worthy only when they are all subservient to the essence of God. The, let's read the last words of Jeremiah, understands and knows me, capital M, essence of God. And now we can answer our opening question on the opening verse of the Haftorah of Shabbat Hanukkah. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I will come and dwell in your midst, says the Lord. And we ask the question, why daughter of Zion? Why not Zion? Song and, and joy, two separate services. How can we put it together? Let's see. Zion is the name that the children of Israel are called in the times of the Holy Temple and of redemption. The word Zion means, the translation of the word Zion means siman, a sign. And we are called a sign because in the times of the Holy Temple, the children of Israel was a sign of God upon earth. However, in the times of exile, such as the times of the Hanukkah, when the Holy Temple was defiled by the Syrian Greeks, and the children of Israel were being spiritually persecuted, we are called the daughter of Zion. However, as we just explained, it is specifically in the times of exile, in the times of darkness, when we are but the daughter of Zion, that we are driven to connect to the essence of our soul. Hence, when we are connected to the omnipotence and ultimate essence of our soul's connection with God, then the service of song, yearning and longing in darkness, and of joy, flow in revelation, need not be separate services in separate times, but all services to God coexist because they're all imbued with the essence of our soul. And this is the fulfillment of what the, our sages say in the Talmud. They teach upon the verse in Psalms, 
He redeemed my soul in peace. It is written, He redeemed my soul with peace from the battle that came upon me. That's what King David said. Because of the many who were with me. Now, the simple interpretation, King David is talking about his redemption from the war of his son Absalom who wanted to kill him and take over being king of, king of Israel. However, let's go on with the Talmud. Rabbi Nathan interprets this not as David speaking about himself, but as God speaking to the children of Israel. And the Holy One, blessed be He, says, anyone who engages in Torah study and in acts of kindness and prays with the congregation, I ascribe to Him as if He redeemed me, God, and my children, the children of Israel, from among the nations of the world. Okay, now we can understand this. It is only when we find and connect with the peace of the essence of our soul in the servants of Torah study, prayer, and good deeds that we bring about the redemption, the unity, the revelation of beyond space in space, the redemption of me and my children from amongst the nations of the world. Okay, now in closing, in closing, let us now understand what it is that we can truly feel, accept, a healthy and even holy pride in. It isn't in our work, even not in our spiritual work, if it is filled with me and with my space. Rather, all of our accomplishments of the physical as well as of the spiritual can only experience a true pride in our work when it is filled with a subservience, transparency, and conscientiousness of the essence of God. Shabbat Shalom and a happy Hanukkah.